listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Monday, February 5th. I'm Morgan from Drake University, and here's our first story. The headline is Immigrants Would Lose State Benefits. Bills May Block In-State Tuition for Undocumented Students by Caleb McCullough of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Over the protests of immigrants and activists who filled the Iowa State Capitol committee rooms this week, Republican lawmakers advanced bills that would put stricter limitations on undocumented immigrants. The bills would make undocumented immigrants ineligible for in-state tuition and public assistance programs and creating a new penalty for transporting or harboring undocumented immigrants. Republicans said the bills would disincentivize illegal immigration into Iowa and ensure that taxpayer money does not go to people who are not in the U.S. legally. Opponents of the bills said they would punish immigrant communities and instill fear in an already vulnerable population. Hardworking Iowa taxpayers should not be footing the bill for individuals who are not in the country legally through any public assistance program or tuition benefits. Iowa Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley wrote in a newsletter. Additionally, we cannot allow our state's policies to essentially incentivize people to come to our country illegally. That would be unsustainable and unfair to those who do follow the proper process to immigrate legally. Removing in-state tuition for undocumented residents. House File 2128 requires that a person provide a proof of U.S. citizenship or proof that they are, quote, lawfully present, unquote, in the country to be considered for in-state tuition at Iowa's public universities and community colleges. Immigrants and activists speaking to an Iowa House subcommittee on Monday said the bill would deny education to a swath of Iowans who grew up and pay taxes in the state. According to estimates from the Migration Policy Institute, there were about 37,000 undocumented immigrants in Iowa as of 2019. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, known as DACA, created legal protections for some people born here before 2007 who were brought into the U.S. illegally as children. Most undocumented graduating high school students today are not eligible for DACA, according to FWD.US, an immigration policy advo- an immigration political advocacy organization. Ari Davis was among the many people who spoke out against the bill on Monday. She said she came here to the U.S. from Mexico at three years old. She received DACA status and, paying in-state tuition, went to Des Moines Area Community College, then graduated from Iowa State University with a degree in criminal justice. She said she has since started a family, bought a home in Iowa, and became a U.S. citizen two years ago. But I can assure you that I've been an American since I was three years old, she said. I'm here to... defend the pursuit of happiness for other Americans who are lacking the legal status of American, but are American in every single other way. Representatives 
for Iowa's public universities and community colleges said the bill would be an administrative challenge for college for colleges and universities who would need to inquire about the citizenship of every prospective student. State universities' current tuition guidelines allow anyone who graduated from an Iowa high school to claim residency in the state for tuition purposes. The bill was passed out of the subcommittee by Republican reps Schuyler Wheeler of Hull and Taylor Collins of Mediapolis. Restarting that sentence. The bill was passed out of the subcommittee by Republican reps Schuyler Wheeler of Hull and Taylor Collins of Mediapolis. Rep Sammy Sheets, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids, voted against the bill, calling it a bill that's in search of a problem. Collins said it was, in part, an answer to the rising rates of unlawful border crossings under President Joe Biden. If you come to this country illegally, we are not going to subsidize your college education, Collins said. The problem is we've had 7 million people come into this country illegally under President Joe Biden, and at some point we're going to have to address that issue. Members of the House Judiciary Committee voted 13 to 7 on Thursdays with Democrats and one Republican opposed to advance the bill for debate and a vote by the full House. Bill would limit public assistance, create penalties for smuggling of persons. Another bill would require non-citizens to be legal residents in order to obtain public assistance programs like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and Medicaid. The bill requires non-citizens to submit documentation about their status and requires the state to use a federal tool to determine citizenship status. Federal law already prohibits an undocumented immigrant from receiving public assistance benefits. The bill, House File 2112, would also create a penalty for smuggling of persons. The bill would make transporting or harboring an undocumented person with the intent to conceal them from law enforcement, a crime under state law. Rep. Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, who chaired the subcommittee on the bill, said Iowa State Patrol officers have had experiences of being unable to detain a person who was transporting undocumented immigrants throughout the state, which he hopes the bill can address. The bill is essentially is essential for law enforcement to be able to protect both citizens and non-citizens, Holt said. There is nothing moral about what is happening on our border. Human trafficking, sex trafficking, deadly drugs entering our nation at an alarming rate. The bill would make the crime punishable by a Class C felony or a Class B felony if the smuggled person carries a risk of bodily injury or death is under 18 or if the offender carries a firearm. It would be a class A felony if a victim of sexual abuse suffered if the it would be a class A felony if the smuggled individual became a victim of sexual abuse, suffered serious injury, or died because of the action. But opponents of the bill told Holt and other subcommittee members on Tuesday that the smuggling provisions of this bill would instill fear into immigrant communities and create a chilling effect for people who work with undocumented immigrants. 
No one at the subcommittee meeting spoke in favor of the bill. Multiple people said they were worried the bill would criminalize driving an undocumented family member to the doctor or a coach transporting undocumented children to and from sporting events. Holt said the bill is not intended to outlaw these activities. Paulina Osegida, and that last name is spelled O-C-E-G-U-E-D-A, who works with the League of United Latin American Citizens Youth Program in Otumwa, said the bill would add to the struggles facing immigrant families in Iowa. I deal with immigrant children and immigrant parents that are in this activity that we have as a club, Osagita said. This would just cause more issues. I don't want to profile and make sure their status is. It just doesn't seem correct. It just seems very discriminatory because you're looking at the color of their skin. Opponents said the rules around public assistance are unnecessary and redundant, as undocumented immigrants are already barred from receiving SNAP and Medicaid benefits under federal law. This bill would create more paperwork and potentially disincentivize immigrants who are eligible for assistance from applying. This bill would prolong those wait times and harm vulnerable populations. It would also create confusion and have a chilling effect, especially for mixed-status families, families where some members are U.S. citizens and others aren't, said Gabriel Saldana, a community organizer with the Iowa Migrant Movement for Justice. The next story is titled, Bill Would Require Use of E-Verify to Check Workers' Immigration Status. And this is written by Robin Upsall of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Advocates for businesses and immigrants spoke last week in opposition to a bill in the Iowa Senate that would require employers use the federal E-Verify program to ensure they are not hiring undocumented immigrants. Republican senators on the subcommittee voted to advance Senate File 108, legislation prohibiting Iowa employers from knowingly hiring a worker who is not authorized to live or work in the country. The bill is a holdover from the 2023 legislative session when it advanced through the committee process but was not brought to the Senate floor. Similar bills have been considered in previous legislative sessions but ultimately have not advanced. While lobbyists speaking on behalf of Iowa business groups said employers want to ensure they are not hiring undocumented workers, many brought forward concerns with the legislation requiring use of E-Verify. The federal web-based system shares a potential hire's I-9 employment eligibility verification form with the Federal Social Security Administration and Department of Homeland Security to ensure they are legally able to work in the country. Dustin Miller, representing multiple business groups, including the Iowa Grocery Industry Association, Iowa Chamber Alliance, and Greater Des Moines Partnership, said the concern is that the system doesn't work. He said there are currently 70,000 false positives every year among employers that use the system many of those being workers under 18 because they're not in federal data they're not yet in federal databases i cannot stress this enough no one wants to employ 
unauthorized aliens, Miller said. If the system worked and it was simple, employers would not have a problem. But tied to a system that is broken causes these problems. Senator Julian Garrett, a Republican from Indianola, defended the system, saying he has talked to many employers already using the system who say it is working as intended. You send it in 99% of the time or more, you get right back, you get confirmation that it's fine, Garrett said. It doesn't delay them for the most part. Once in a while, something happens. What I do hear on a lot is from just average citizens not coming up here to lobby or whatever who say, we need to stop this illegal immigration. We need to stop people undercutting our wages. The legislation would make it a crime to knowingly employ an, quote, unauthorized alien employee, end quote, and would allow law enforcement, county attorneys, and members of the public to file complaints with Iowa Workforce Development. If the employer is found in violation, IWD would be required to bring action in district court. A first offense would require businesses fire all undocumented employees, serve three years probation, filing quarterly reports on new hires, and must sign a sworn affidavit to not hire undocumented workers. If a business does not file the sworn affidavit, the state would have the ability to suspend their business license. Tom Chapman with the Iowa Catholic Conference said while the, while the legislation allows for the court to consider whether a business made good faith effort to comply with its requirements, he criticized the lack of options available for employees who are incorrectly labeled as undocumented workers under the E-Verify system. You know, when the E-Verify system comes back with a false positive, they're not going to be able to get a job unless they can get that fixed, and that is a time-consuming and can be a scary process if you're trying to get a job. Chuck Hurley, an advocate with the family leader, spoke as a matter of personal interest in support of the bill, saying that mandating the E-Verify system will help employers with efforts to improve security and stop illegal immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border. I don't want to see any business harm harmed, Hurley said, but we're at a crisis point, basically have an invasion, and everybody's going to have to do their part. Senator Tony Bizagano, which is spelled, that last name is spelled B-I-S-I-G-N-A-N-O, a Democrat from Des Moines, voted against advancing the bill, saying the number of businesses opposed to the measure should give pause to the lawmakers seeking to advance the measure. He criticized Hurley's statement that there was an invasion happening along the U.S. southern border, saying that the characterization does not describe the human tragedy that we're seeing in real time with migrants attempting to enter the country. He said the bill will not address concerns about the border. Every ugly thing that's coming with what's happening, Iowa is not going to resolve it, Bizagano said. Iowa's not going to resolve it with E-Verify. The nation hasn't been able to resolve it, period, but E-Verify hasn't solved that problem. Iowa Senator Tom Shipley, a Republican from Nodaway, supported advancing the bill, saying it needs work to address the concerns brought up 
during the subcommittee meeting. A requirement that businesses use the E-Verify program failed to pass out of a subcommittee panel. The bill, House Study Bill 105, was tabled until a future meeting. All right, the next story is titled, U.S. Has Warning for Iran. Officials say any attacks on American forces will bring retaliation. This is written by John Gambrill and Tara Kopp of the Associated Press. After a weekend of retaliatory strikes, the United States on Sunday warned Iran and the militias it arms and funds that it will conduct more attacks if American forces in the Mideast continue to be targeted, but that it does not want an open-ended military campaign across the region. We are prepared to deal with anything that any group or any country tries to come at us with, said Jake Sullivan, President Joe Biden's national security advisor. Sullivan said Iran should expect a swift and forceful response if it, and not one of its proxies, chose to respond directly against the U.S. Sullivan delivered the warnings during a series of interviews with TV news shows after the U.S. and Britain on Saturday stuck, struck 36 Houthi targets in Yemen. The Iran-backed militants have fired on American and international interests repeatedly in the wake of the Israel-Hamas war. An air assault Friday in Iraq and Syria targeted other Iranian-backed militias and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard in retaliation for the drone strike that killed three U.S. troops in Jordan last weekend. The U.S. fired again at Houthi targets on Sunday. We cannot rule out that there will be future attacks from Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria or from the Houthis, Sullivan said. The U.S. has blamed the attack at the Tower 22 base in Jordan on January 28th on the Islamic resistance in Iraq, a coalition of Iranian-backed militaries, militias. Iran tried to distance itself from the drone strike, saying the militias act independently. Biden is not looking for a wider war, Sullivan said. When conditions about when questioned about the potential for strikes inside Iran that would expand the conflict in the volatile region, but when asked about the possibility of direct escalations by the Iranians, he said, quote, if they choose to respond directly to the United States, they would be met with a swift and forceful response from us. While pledging to respond in a sustained way, to new assaults on Americans, Sullivan said he would not describe it as some open-ended military campaign. Still, he said, we intend to take additional strikes and additional action to continue to send a clear message that the United States will respond when our forces are attacked or our people are killed. There will be more steps taken, he said. Some of those steps will be seen. Some may not be seen. The U.S. attacks on dozens of sites in Iraq and Syria hit more than 85 targets in seven locations. These included command and control headquarters, intelligence centers, rockets and missiles, drone and ammunition storage sites, and other facilities that were connected to the militias or the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, QUDS forces, and 
expeditionary unit that handles Tehran's relationship with and arming of regional militias. The next story is titled, Another Atmospheric River Hits. Several counties issue evacuation warnings. Over 846,000 lose power. And this is written by the Associated Press. The second of back-to-back atmospheric rivers battered California on Sunday, flooding roadways and knocking out power to more than 846,000 people and prompting a rare warning for hurricane-force winds as the state braced for what could be days of heavy rain. The storm inundated streets and brought down trees and electrical lines across the San Francisco Bay Area, where winds topped 60 miles per hour in some areas. Gusts exceeding 80 miles per hour were recorded in the mountains. In Southern California, officials warned of potentially devastating flooding and ordered evacuations canyons that burned in recent wildfires that are at risk for mud and debris flows. Customers called the Santa Barbara Home Improvement Center inquiring about sandbags, flashlights, and generators, said Assistant Manager Lupita Vital. Sandbags sold out on Saturday, so people were buying bags of plotting soil and fertilizer instead, she said. People are trying to get anything they can get that's heavy to use it as, you know, protection for their doors and everything, Vital said Sunday. This storm is predicted to be one of the largest and most significant in our county's history, and our goal is to get through it without any fatalities or any serious injuries, Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown told reporters Saturday. Classes were canceled Monday for schools across the county, which was devastated by mudslides caused by powerful storms in 2018. Strong winds and heavy rain brought treacherous conditions to the coastal city of Ventura, west of Los Angeles, said Alexis Herrera, who was trying to bail out his sedan, which was flooded with flood water. All the freeways are flooded around here, Herrera said in Spanish. I don't know how I'm going to move my car. More than 846,000 customers were without electricity statewide, with most of the outages concentrated in coastal regions, according to PowerOutage.us. Winds caused hour-long delays at San Francisco International Airport. By 2.30 p.m. Sunday, 155 departing flights were delayed, and 69 had been canceled, according to the tracking flight, the tracking website FlightAware. Palisades Tahoe, a ski resort about 200 miles northeast of San Francisco, said it was anticipating the heaviest snowfall this season, with accumulations of 6 inches per hour for a total of up to 2 feet. Heavy snow is possible into Monday throughout the Sierra Nevada. Most of the state has been much of the state has been drying out from the system that blew in last week, causing flooding and dumping welcome snow in mountains. The latest storm, also called a Pineapple Express because its plume of moisture stretches back across the Pacific to near Hawaii, 
arrived offshore in Northern California on Saturday when most of the state was under some sort of wind, surf, or flood watch. The California Governor's Office of Emergency Services activated its operations center and positioned personnel and equipment in areas most at risk. Far-right Israeli minister says Biden hurting war effort. And this is written by the Associated Press. A far-right minister in Israel's government criticized President Joe Biden and said that having Donald Trump in power would allow more freedom to fight Hamas. The comments sparked outrage among other Israeli officials on Sunday and highlighted the sensitivity of relations as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visits the region again this week. The Biden administration skirted Congress to rush weapons to Israel and shielded it from international calls for a ceasefire in the four months since Hamas's October 7th attack. But the White House has also urged Israel to take greater measures to avoid harming civilians and allow more aid to besieged Gaza. Itamar Ben-Gavir, Israel's national security minister, said in an interview with the Wall Street Journal that Biden was hindering Israel's war effort. Instead of giving us his full backing, Biden is busy with giving humanitarian aid and fuel to Gaza, which goes to Hamas, Ben Gavir said. If Trump was in power, the U.S. conduct would be completely different. His remarks drew fire from Benny Gans, a retired general who said Ben Gavir was, quote, causing tremendous da- damage, end quote, to U.S.-Israeli relations. Opposition leader Yair Lapid also posting on X, said, Ben Gavir's remarks prove that he, quote, does not understand foreign relations, end quote. Netanyahu, without mentioning Ben Gavir by name, appeared to refer to his remarks during a cabinet meeting. I am not in need of any assistance in navigating our relations with the U.S. and the international community, he said. Next, Tribe bans GOP's Noam after razor wire remarks. A South Dakota tribe has banned Republican Governor Christy Noam from the Pine Ridge Reservation after she spoke this week about wanting to send razor wire and security personnel to Texas to help deter immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border and said cartels are infiltrating the state's reservations. Quote, due to the safety of the Oyate, effective immediately, you are hereby banished from the homelands of the Ogallala Sioux Tribe. Tribe President Frank Starr comes out in a Friday statement to Noam. Oyate is a word for people or nation. Starr comes out accused Noam of trying to use the border issue to help get former U.S. President Donald Trump elected and boost her chances of becoming his running mate. The next little story is titled, Moscow officials say 28 killed in bakery hit. Moscow installed officials say Ukrainian shelling killed at least 28 people at a bakery in the Russian-occupied city of Lysinkchinks. Oh goodness, and that city is spelled... L-Y-S-Y-C-H-A-N-S-K. At least one child was among the dead Saturday, local leader Leonid 
Pascheknik wrote in a statement on Telegram, and that last name is spelled P-A-S-E-C-H-N-I-K. Ten others were rescued from under the rubble by emergency services, he said. Ukrainian officials in Kiev did not comment on the incident. Both Moscow and Kiev have increasingly relied on longer-range attacks this winter amid largely unchanged unchanged positions on the 930-mile front line in the nearly two-year-old war. Alright, the next stories are just a series of little stories about various um, things written by the Associated Press. Nambia, or sorry, Namibia. Namibia's president and founding prime minister, Hage Giengob, died Sunday at age 82 while receiving treatment for cancer, and the southern African nation quickly swore in his deputy to complete the term in office. Pope Francis. Pope Francis on Saturday reaffirmed Christians' special relationship with Jews amid rising anti-Semitism since the outbreak of the Gaza War in a letter to the Jews of Israel that he said was prompted by messages from Jewish organizations around the world. Chile. Firefighters wrestled Sunday with massive forest fires that broke out in central Chile two days earlier as officials extended curfews in cities most heavily affected by the blaze and said at least 99 people were killed. The fires have been burning with the highest intensity around the city of Viña del Mar, where at least 1,600 people were left without homes. Denver. Two people died following an early morning shooting on Sunday in a residential area of Denver that left four other people injured, police said. A man and a boy were killed, said police department spokesperson Sean Towell. The injuries to the other victims were not specified. Skydiver dies. Authorities are investigating the death of a 73-year-old skydiver in Arizona, the second deadly incidence involving Eloy skydiving events in less than a month. Terry Gardner and three fellow experienced skydivers were making their third jump of the day around noon on Wednesday in Eloy, police said. Gardner's main parachute never fully deployed carnival float. Five people were injured Sunday in the southwestern German German city of Kell when a carnival float burst into flames, police said. The, part, the parade was part of Fashnat, the local name for carnival celebrations. The rest of the parade was canceled. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Monday, February 5th. On Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Morgan from Drake University. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at the phone number 515-243-6833. There are no obituaries in today's paper, but I am going to read the obituaries from the weekend's papers. So, the 
following obituaries were published on Saturday, February 3rd's paper. The first one is Amy Jo Spetman, P.R.O. Amy Jo Spetman, P.R.O., born April 26, 1962, passed away on January 20th, 2024, at the age of 61, at her home, after a hard-fought battle with cancer. Amy was born to the late Alfred Spetman and Jolene Cox. She's preceded in death by her father, Alfred L. Spetman, grandparents Joe and Georgia Bracker, and Alfred and Lorene Spetman, and many friends. Amy is survived by her mother, Jolene Cox, and three sons, Justin and Jessica Piaro of Council Bluffs, Jason and Shelby, Brandon and Amber Lambert, all of Arkansas, six grandchildren, four step-grandchildren, many aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, and cousins. There will be a memorial service in the spring. Time will be announced in the spring. The next obituary is for Everett Fountain. Survived by son Lynn and Ruth Fountain of Council Bluffs, daughter Sherry and David Bowens of Omaha, Nebraska. Everett lived from August 10, 1927 to January 28, 2024. Visitation with the family will be on Monday, February 5th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Fouts Funeral Home in Woodbind, Iowa. The funeral service will be at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, February 6th at the United Methodist Church in Logan, Iowa. And some information about the Fouts Funeral Home, uh, their website is www foutsfuneralhome.com The next is John M. McClellan Sr., who lived from April 5th, 1934 to January 24th, 2024. A celebration service is pending. See heflyhefly.com for more information, and that is spelled H-E-A-F-E-Y H-E-A-F-E-Y dot com and some information about Hefley Hoffman Dwork Cutler Mortuaries and Crematory that address is 7805 West Center Road Omaha, Nebraska the next obituary is Marilyn Swotek Marilyn Jane Swotek passed peacefully into the Lord's arms on January 29, 2024. She was born in Sioux City, Iowa on April 1, 1939. Marilyn was preceded in death by her beloved son, Paul John Paul Gergrich, and that's spelled G-R-G-U-R-I-C-H. She is survived by her four daughters, seven grandchildren, and one great-grandchild. Marilyn will be cherished and remembered by all who knew her for her kindness, integrity, compassion, quick wit, and love of all living things. Since it was Marilyn's wish that there be no service, friends wishing to honor Marilyn are invited to make a donation in her name to Lighthouse Missionary Community Bible Church, 
which whose address is 2136 Fifth Avenue, Council Bluffs. The last obituary in Saturday's paper is for Kelly Lynn Hurley, whose maiden name was Cole Glazer. She lived from July 24th, 1962 to January 30th, 2024. Kelly Lynn Hurley, after battling health issues for many years, passed away on January 30th, 2024 in Council Bluffs. She was a loving daughter, sister, mother, and friend. She is preceded in death by her son, Jeffrey Caleb Hurley. As per Kelly's request, no funeral or memorial service will be held. And there were no obituaries in yesterday, Sunday's paper, so I am going to move on to the sports section of today's Monday, February 5th's paper. The first story is titled, Number 2, Purdue, Pushes Streak to 7. This is College Basketball, the Men's Top 25 Recap by the Associated Press. Purdue's inside-out combination of Zach Edley and Braden Smith is a tough matchup for the Boilermakers' opponents, even the strongest ones. Smith scored 19 points, and Eddie joined another exclusive club as the second-ranked Boilermakers beat number 6 Wisconsin 75-69 on Sunday for their seventh consecutive victory. Purdue is 6-0 this season against teams that were ranked 11th or higher at the time of the game. We have an elite point guard and we have an elite center, Coach Matt Painter said. So when you go into a team, you've got to have a game plan for Zach Eddy. It's obvious, right? But then you've also got a game plan for Braden Smith and his ability to pass because they both make other people better. Lance Jones scored 20 points for for Purdue, which took the lead for good midway throughout the first half and extended its Big Ten lead to one and a half games. Wisconsin lost its second straight as it prepares for a two-game trip to Michigan and Rutgers. Eddie had 18 points, 13 rebounds, and three blocked shots. Those are some elite basketball players, Hall of Famer said. Hall of Famers, Edie said. Being mentioned in the same air as them is great, obviously. Tyler Waugh led Wisconsin with its season-high 20 points to go along with 7 rebounds and 5 assists. This marked the 6th consecutive Purdue-Wisconsin game to be decided by 6 points or fewer. The teams meet again March 10th at Purdue. Then there is a little bit on number 11 Arizona, which scored 82, and Stanford, which scored 71. Omar Balo had 18 points and 13 rebounds. Caleb Love added 18 points, and host Arizona shut down Stanford in the second half. Number 14, Illinois, 87, versus Nebraska, 84, which went into overtime. Marcus Damask and Justin Harmon each made two free throws, and Terrence Shannon Jr. had a steal in the final 25 seconds of overtime to help host Illinois beat Nebraska. The 
Illinois led 72 to 62 with three minutes and 29 seconds left in regulation, but Nebraska went in front on Reink Masker's jumper with nine seconds left. Damask then split a pair of free throws with three seconds remaining, tying it at 73. All right, the next story is titled MetLife Stadium to Host 2026 Final Soccer World Cup, written by Ronald Blum of the Associated Press. The 2026 World Cup Final will be played at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey, beating out Texas and California for soccer's showcase game. FIFA awarded the July 19th championship to the $1.6 billion venue, which opened in 2010, the culminating match of an expanded 48-nation, 104-game tournament that will be spread across three nations for the first time. Located about 10 miles from Manhattan, MetLife was promoted by both New York and New Jersey, where the stadium was built in the Meadowlands Marshes. The land of Bruce Springsteen, John Bon Jovi, and Frank Sinatra will be the focal point of the globe on that Sunday when either Lionel Messi's Argentina will try to win its second straight title or a successor will emerge. It will be a celebration of our diversity and our values, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy said in a telephone interview. The bigger picture is what leads up to it and what we leave behind for the decades to come. FIFA made the announcement Sunday at a Miami television studio, allocating the opener of the 39-day tournament to Mexico City's Estadio Azteca on June 11th and the finale to the home of the NFL's New York's New York Jets and Giants. Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones had lobbied for the final to be at his AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. All games from the quarterfinals on are being played in the United States. Semifinals are on July 14th at AT&T and the following day at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Since reaching the semifinals of the first World Cup in 1930, the U.S. has advanced to the quarterfinals just once in 2002. It's about making our nation proud, American coach Greg Berhalter said. One way to really grow the game and to change soccer in America forever is to perform well and do something that no U.S. team has ever done. 78 or of 104 matches will be played in the U.S. with 13 games each in Mexico and Canada and there as many as six matches a day. And this is... This is men's soccer, the men's World Cup, to be clear. Okay, the next story is titled, Don't Lose Your Time Off. Plan now so you actually use all of it. This is written by Brooks Johnson of the Star Tribune in Minneapolis. In December, Americans were holding on to hundreds of millions of days of unused paid time off, referred to as PTO. By the end of the month, many of those days vanished, just as they do every year when use-it-or-lose-it balance resets. This year can be different. The bottom line is take a vacation if you can, says psychologist Dr. Catherine Isham. 
When you take time away from the stresses of work and daily life, it can improve our physical and mental health, motivation, relationships, job performance, and perspective. Nearly half of all U.S. workers who have PTO do not take all of it in a year, according to a recent Pew survey. Most said they either don't feel they need to take more time or worry about falling behind at work. Meanwhile, employee burnout rates continue to rise, and two-thirds of workers Aflac surveyed last year said more time off is the preferred antidote. Studies have shown positive health outcomes associated with taking more vacations, including a reduced risk of heart attacks and lower instances of depression. For those with a PTO balance to spend down this year, now's the time to plan. Here are some pointers to make the most of your time and use it all before you let it go to waste. Maximize holidays. The typical life hack offered on social media and travel blogs is to plan vacations around federal holidays because they are days you might already have off work. You can make long weekends even longer, often without sacrificing additional PTO. An online calendar, holidays dash optimizer.org can help maximize time off around the holidays. Even if you can't take advantage of every public holiday to maximize your time off, you'd still be surprised by how much you can benefit from a few well-timed vacation requests, according to personal finance blog The Points Guy. For example, Memorial Day is Monday, May 27th this year. You could ask off for Friday, May 24th, or Tuesday, May 28th, to give yourself a four-day break by using just one PTO day. Embrace the staycation. A vacation doesn't have to cost anything. If that has been a deciding factor in planning time away from work, a staycation can be as simple as spending time at home, catching up on reading, gardening, or other hobbies. It can involve booking a spa day, a nice dinner, and maybe even a night at a hotel while a babysitter watches the kids. The beauty of a staycation is that you can tailor its purpose to your needs, A AAA says. Just planning a vacation staycation can boost happiness weeks in advance as the anticipation lowers stress. Prioritize mental health. Sometimes a random, a random day off is all it takes to cool down the burnout, and some workplaces have even added mental health days that employees can take specifically to unwind. Saving for sickness. For jobs that provide a single pool of PTO, there might be some pressure to hold on to those precious hours in case of emergencies. This is essential in preparing for cold and flu season at the end of the year, but if the bugs brought home from your kids, from your child's daycare aren't as severe this time around, you could be leaving PTO on the table. The next story is titled, Quench Your Thirst for Blue. This is the On Gardening section, written by Norman Winter of the Tribune National, the Tribune News Service. As I watch comments on my Facebook page, there is something about this winter that has everyone counting the days until spring. I know I have seen it at least, I know I have seen at least two countdown clocks marking the hours and minutes. When I post a photo that shows any color of blue, particularly in combination with orange, you can feel the moan stretching across cyberspace. 
Blue is the color that drives us to the brink of hysteria. I showed one of my container photos earlier this month that had a couple of blue flowers with orange and its Facebook reach hit almost 1.3 million people. Trust me when I say I am small potatoes in the Facebook world. This got me thinking about a blue ageratum, which is spelled A-G-E-R-A-T-U-M, that no one thinks about. Artist blue. There may be no more of a desired flower for the southern garden than the floss flower. I assure you, never once in my life has that common name escaped my lips. In fact, spell check has it underlined as I type. Most gardeners in the south will quickly tell you we can grow adjuratums for only a while until the summer heat cooks them as if they were growing on a Martian deserts. Sadly, they don't know that words like flame-proof at the Dallas Arboretum are associated with artist blue. You may be thinking they cook the books, so to speak, in Dallas, but I assure you this plant trial cooks the plants. It's not literally in the oven, but in the hot Texas summer. What caught my eye in doing research for this article is that the trophy case now has 27 awards. Texas isn't the only southern state either. There are top performer awards at the universities of Georgia, Florida, and Tennessee, as well as Mississippi State and South Carolina State. There are this many, if there are this many in the South, it only stands to reason that all the northern trial sites are seeing the same thing. Artist blue adjuratum is a really special blue. Proven winners call it blue-purple, and I would add touches of burgundy, too. It reaches about 12 inches tall with a spread of 10 to 12 inches in the south. I know I shot photos of it taller, too, so let that be a voice of experience. Artist Blue also does one thing that its wild roadside cousins do, and that is feed the world, so to speak. The button-like flowers of the aster family bring in bees, butterflies, and hummingbirds to the delight of all who get to watch. It's a continuous bloomer, needing no deheading. Now is a good time to source your artist blue adjuratums. Despite over two pages of awards and representing most states that have trials, this is unfortunately not one of the flowers that you simply go to the garden center and pick up a flat or two. Some garden centers would simply say adjuratums do not work in the South, but now you know different. Before setting them out, prepare the soil so the roots can get established in the garden. That's what soil prep is all about. Select a site with plenty of sunlight. They need soil with good drainage, as plants need oxygen too. If we fail, it is often here. Work in three to four inches of organic matter until to a depth of six or eight inches. You can also use prepared landscape mixes and plant on raised beds. If you look at your favorite commercial landscapers, you'll notice they are pros at this. Artist Blue also works great in containers, which makes the soil prep issue easy peasy. Artist Blue adjuratums are really easy to grow from the standpoint of maintenance. I already mentioned no deadheading. Feed them with a light application of a slow-release balanced fertilizer about every four to six weeks. Pay attention to this, particularly when growing in mixed containers they get wat- that get watered frequently. With containers, you may want to use water-soluble fertilizer that you mix every two to three weeks. 
in a new day in the world of adjuratums and thanks it is a new day in the world of adjuratums and thanks to the artist blue and artist pearl also an award winner you can use them to create wonderful palettes of color in the long summer season of 2024 you can follow the author norman winter on facebook and his account name is norman winter the garden guy the next thing i'm going to read is the today in history section today's highlight on february 5th 2020 the senate voted to acquit president donald trump bringing to a close the third presidential trial in american history though a majority of senators expressed unease with trump's pressure ukraine on pusher pressure campaign on ukraine that resulted in the two articles of impeachment just one republican mitt romney of utah broke with the gop and voted to convict on this date in 1811 george the prince of wales was named prince regent due to the mental illness of his father britain's king george iii on this day in 1917, the U.S. Congress passed over President Woodrow Wilson's veto, an act, surveilly curtail, an act severely curtailing Asian immigration. On this day in 18, sorry, on this day in 1918, during World War I, the SS Tuscania, which was transporting about 2,000 U.S. troops to Europe, was torpedoed by a German U-boat in the Irish Sea, resulting in the loss of more than 200 people. On this day in 1937, President Franklin D. Roosevelt proposed increasing the number of U.S. Supreme Court justices. The proposal, which failed in Congress, drew accusations that Roosevelt was attempting to pack the nation's highest court. On this day in 1971, Apollo 14 astronauts Alan Shepard and Edgar Mitchell stepped onto the surface of the moon in the first of two lunar excursions. In 1973, services were held at Arlington. On this day in 1973, services were held at Arlington National Cemetery for U.S. Army Colonel William B. Nolday, the last official American combat casualty before the Vietnam ceasefire took took effect. On this day in 1983, former Nazi Gestapo official Claus Barbie, expelled from Bolivia, was brought to Lyon, France, to stand trial. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. He died in 1991. On this day in 1993, President Bill Clinton signed the Family and Medical Leave Act, granting workers up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave for family emergencies. In, on this day in 1994, white separatist Byron de la was convicted in Jackson, Missouri, of murdering civil rights leader Medgar Evers in 1963 and was immediately sentenced to life in prison. On this day in 2008, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, a guru to the Beatles who introduced the West to transcendental mediation, meditation, died at his home in the Dutch town of Vlodrop. He is believed to be about 90 and that Today in History was written by the Associated Press. And that brings us to today, the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Monday, February 5th. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. One last time, I'm Morgan from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.